there's a myth going around that Jesus is mild. Jesus is anything but mild. There's a myth going around that he's kind of harmless. Well, I mean, when I say Jesus, what do you think? There's a song, uh, I love the hymns of Charles Wesley. He's one of my favorite writers of great hymns of the faith. But there's one hymn he wrote that I don't like this one line in it. It's called, Gentle Jesus, Meek and Mild. Mm. Jesus, yes, is gentle. He can be gentle. He's fundamentally gentle with those who need him to be. If you're a lamb, he's a shepherd. He's tender and gentle at heart. The Bible says that. Jesus can be meek, understood biblically. Meekness is strength under control in the Bible. Jesus never used his power in any wrong way. But Jesus is anything but mild. He's not weak. He's not non-threatening. He's not a wimp. He's not easy to kick around. Some people think Jesus has no bark or bite. That Jesus is not spicy or hot or tangy. That Jesus is mild. But that could not be further from the truth. He's not passionless and weak sauce. And in this eye-opening story that Kelsey just read to us in God's holy word, it shatters that myth, doesn't it? Last week, in the first half of this chapter, at the wedding in Cana, Jesus was very quiet and elusive. You might have even got the idea that he was mild. He did this miracle of turning water into wine, but only a very few people even knew about it. Even people who drank the new wine. This is great stuff. Where'd it come from? Nobody knows. Servants knew. Disciples knew. But it wasn't big and showy. But in this next story... Jesus is very public. He doesn't do a miracle here, but he definitely steps out of the shadows and into the spotlight. And this too reveals his glory. This too reveals his identity. This too makes him and his father known. It gives us a new view to a whole other side to his personality. Last week was all about joy. This week is about anger. The first part of this chapter was quiet This part is very loud. Did you hear that when Kelsey punched that? How dare you? You can feel it. In the last story, Jesus was content to be a guest. But in this story, he's cleaning house in his own home. The last story was about wine, but this story is about a whip. Which of those is the real Jesus? Both. They're both right next to each other in the same chapter in God's holy word. So they need to both be right together in our minds and in our own theology of who Jesus really is. We have to make room in our minds, if we don't have it, for a Jesus who will clean out the temple with a whip. Yes, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But when John writes his apocalypse... He predicts a day when unrepentant unbelievers will try to hide from the wrath of the Lamb. This Lamb may be meek, but He is anything but mild. Let's look at it more closely. 
Look at verse 12. This is what happened after the joy of the wedding in Cana. Verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. Jesus leaves Cana for Capernaum, which was also a small town, this one on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum was a kind of home base for Jesus during his period, this period of his ministry. He's there with his mother, who we heard a lot about last week, but, he, but she won't show up again until at the end of this story, when Jesus' hour comes. He's there with his mother and his brothers, probably the other later sons of Joseph and Mary. They'll show up a few more times in the next few chapters. And he's there with his disciples. So far we've met John, Andrew, Simon, uh, Simon Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. And then after some period of time, Jesus gets ready and heads south for the Passover celebration. Look at verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. You always go up to Jerusalem because it's on higher ground. So even if you're going south, you're going up to Jerusalem. The Passover was the annual celebration, the Jewish celebration of the exodus from Egypt. It was a big deal for the nation at that time, and of course it still is. And everyone went up to Jerusalem to celebrate it. This Passover was one of three Passovers that are mentioned in the Gospel of John. So kind of over three different years. Jesus goes up to Jerusalem, up to the temple, up to observe the Passover. And what he sees there leads him to take shocking action. What he found was shameless commerce in the place of worship. Look at verse 14. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. We're supposed to go, what? That's not how it's supposed to be. The title of this message is, This Temple, because this story is all about what Jesus did and said at the temple on this day. Though we're going to find out that it's not as much about this particular temple as it is about Jesus. The temple was supposed to be the meeting place between God and his people. We've read about the temple many times, talked about it many times as we've studied the Bible. It's one of those big fixtures in Hebrew life. It was an earthly headquarters of heaven on earth. Solomon built the first one, replacing the tabernacle, and then it got torn down there at the end of Jeremiah, right? We just looked at that earlier this year. Do you remember back before the sabbatical? Remember Jeremiah? It was a long time ago. Well, Herod comes along and he begins to rebuild the temple in about, well, in a couple decades before the birth of Christ. So it's been there's a big process of rebuilding this temple. So that's the temple that Jesus is visiting. It's the earthly headquarters of heaven on earth, God's house on earth. Now, of course, God is not contained in that building or even in its outer courts. God is uncontainable. Amen? But this building symbolized in one central location the very presence of God. God lives here on that house on the hill, right? He's here among us. We can go up to his house and worship him. It was supposed to be filled with God and with the worship of God. It was a place where God's people could go to pray and go to offer their sacrifices, and go to meet with God. It was supposed to be filled with God and with the worship of God. And even the outermost courts 
there was a place for the Gentiles to approach God. People who weren't even yet God's people were invited to come closer and to get to know Him and come to pray and come to worship. And at this moment, that outer court had been crowded with commerce. Instead of quiet contemplation, Jesus found what amounted to a barn and a bank put together. Look at verse 14. In the temple courts. Those are the big words right there. In the temple. He found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Is it wrong to sell cattle, sheep, and doves? No. Is it wrong to have a money exchange? No. I needed it to get over to the UK. They don't, well, they actually do take our money over there, but I wanted to have their money that I'm going to pass over the the counter, right? So I did a money exchange. Nothing wrong with that. What's wrong? In the temple courts. Now, doubtless, these folks thought they were providing a wonderful service to the people coming to the Passover. Where was Jesus coming from? Capernaum, right? That was lots of miles from Jerusalem, okay? That was a long walk. Was Jesus supposed to bring along a sheep from Capernaum to bring his sacrifice at the Passover? No. It's okay to buy it in Jerusalem. How convenient that is to buy it in Jerusalem. And what's even more convenient? To buy it inside the temple. What a service I have for you. How about to exchange the money? The Jewish men had to pay a tax. And they weren't allowed to pay the tax with the Roman coins that had Caesar's image on them. That would be considered blasphemous. So they had to get their various coins turned to Tyrian coins, for a small fee, of course. And everybody needed it, so how helpful it was for there to be guys at tables doing that exchange right there in that temple for you. The words that bothered Jesus so much were, in the temple court. They brought the animal store and the currency exchange into the temple courts. They turned the place of worship into a cross between a county fair and the shopping mall. Do you see it in your mind's eye? The the temple complex is 36 acres, okay? I don't know how big the Grange Fair is, but maybe it's something more like that, okay? And there's this bustling marketplace where they're supposed to be praying. And there's cows mooing, and there's sheep buying, and there's doves cooing, and there's men haggling over the exchange rate. All this noise. All these coins. All these cows. And no prayer. Well, Jesus here is now no longer quiet or elusive. He is sure not mild. Look at verse 15. So he made a whip out of cords, and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? Do you see the fire in his eyes? Do you feel the heat? Jesus reaches down, he finds some cords, and he weaves them together into a whip. And then he raises that whip, and he starts to drive all these people and beasts out of the temple. He's not being mean. He's not being violent. He's being forceful. He's not out of control. This is not like when Jesus lost it. Remember when Jesus lost it? 
He's not out of control. He's in control. And he's taking control of the temple. Go on. Go on. Out. Out. Come on. Come on. Hiya. Hiya. I doubt he's using the whip on people. He's probably using it on the cattle. Get them moving. But if they were coming at him and not going the direction they're supposed to be going, maybe he would. You can see the people. They're wide-eyed. They're getting out of his way. They're backing up. What is going on in here? Never seen this before. And then Jesus takes his arm and he slides it down the tables. There's coins scattering everywhere. And then he puts his arm under the table and he flips it. Get this out of here. Get this out of here. Get this out of here. Tables are going flying. There's chaos. There's pandemonium. Do you have room in your theology for this Jesus? For an angry Jesus? There is such a thing as righteous anger, and Jesus is righteously angry. Stop it, he says, right now. I have two points of, to summarize the message of this story, and they're both about the identity of Jesus and this temple. Here's the first one. Jesus, the Jesus we see here, Jesus is the zealous Lord of this temple. You see what Jesus is saying about himself in verse 16? We're seeing the tables flying, but we don't hear his voice. Listen to what he says. Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? That's a bold claim. My father's house. Whose house is this temple? It's God's house, right? And Jesus is here yelling that it is his his father's house. Which means that Jesus is the son of this house. He's the the son over this house. He's not just some random person who's got angry in the temple. He's not even just a loyal Jew who says, we need reform in this country. Jesus has gotten so angry because this bad thing is happening in his father's house. So it personally affects him. He's Lord over this temple. And so he has a right and even a responsibility to get angry about it. This is an imperfect analogy, but imagine if you had grown up and moved out and then went back to visit your childhood home. Okay, you with me? You grew up, you moved out, now you've come back to visit your childhood home and you found that some intruders have broken in and set up a pet store in the front room. And your parents are crowded out, or your parents' guests. It's an imperfect analogy because the father, you know. But your parents are crowded out. Your parents' guests are crowded out. They can't come in now and visit with your parents because there's, it smells like animals in your front room, and they're running the cash register. How would you feel if that's what you discovered when you got home to your family home? And what would you do? Jesus is filled with righteous indignation and he empties the room of these intruders. And he has every right and every responsibility to do it because he is the Lord of the temple. And his disciples, they contemplated this in the days that followed. They're thinking, what was that? What was going on? And they realized that this was only right and a fulfillment of what the Messiah was always supposed to be. 
Look at verse 17. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Where's that from? Psalm 69, verse 9. Psalm 69 is one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. They clearly thought that it was messianic. The Messiah was going to be zealous, full of zeal, full of passion, full of deep care about what is right for God's house. He would not be mild. He would be zealous. Zeal would consume him. That word consume there means to be eaten up as like by a flame. He'd be on fire for the glory of God. And of course, that consuming would also be consuming him in the sense of leading to his death. A few years later from this, Jesus will clear the temple once again early in the week. And by the end of the week, he will be crucified for having done it. Zeal for your house will consume me. What's the application of this truth? The first and foremost is to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and God the Son. This is to tell us who he is. I don't know about you, but whenever I read this, I'm trying to think about how I'm, I'm supposed to relate to Jesus' anger here. Am I supposed to be angry like him? Is he angry with me? That's where my mind goes. But the first and foremost thing we're supposed to see about Jesus here is that he is rightfully angry because he is the zealous son over this house. John the Evangelist said that he put these things in his gospel so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we may have life in his name. So in John 2, we're supposed to see who Jesus is and put our faith in him. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and God the Son? Do you believe that the Word, we said before, the Word was with God, the Word was God, that that Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, that we have seen His glory, His angry glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made Him known. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? It's only after we see who Jesus is revealed to be that we can think about applying the theology of his anger into our lives as well. So my call to you this morning is believe that Jesus is the zealous Lord of the temple. But it is good to think some more about his anger here and how it relates to you and me. It's good to ask ourselves the question, who are we most like in this story? Like, I'm reading a story, I'm going to put myself in the shoes of one of the characters, which one am I? Well, I think we like to think of ourselves as Jesus in this story, right? Especially when we get angry about something. Anybody get angry about something this week? Don't raise your hand, I know you did. We like to think that our anger is righteous. We should be turning the tables on our enemies. But the Bible says that so often our anger does not trend towards righteousness. 
we get angry about the wrong things and for the wrong reasons and to the wrong degree. You and I are not the zealous Lord of this temple. So we should be very careful about what we allow to make ourselves angry. Tip on that. Social media, a lot of it's designed to make you angry. Right? You get more clicks, more eyeballs if you're angry. You don't have to go there. I would hope that we are like the disciples in this story. Let's put ourselves in their shoes. They reflected on who Jesus is and they related Scripture to it. They're making all the connections. That's what we just did. That'd be good. I would also hope that we would be like the common worshipers who probably would have been so relieved that worship had been restored at the temple and the temple was returned to how it was supposed to be. The Gentiles are like, yes, you mean I can go to the temple again? There's a place for me to worship? Yes. I think what we're really the most like in this story at this point is the temple itself. Put yourself in the shoes of the temple. Because the Bible says that we are the temple of God. The church is the temple of God. Christians are the temple of God. Not this building, as wonderful as this building is. It's a wonderful tool, great meeting house. But this building is not a temple. This building is not more holy than another building. This is not the house of God. These people gather here. This is the house of God. And each individual true Christian is a temple. So the better question we might ask is, are we crowding out the true worship of God in our own hearts and in our own lives together and replacing it with whatever does not belong there? Have we replaced the worship of Almighty God with the worship of Almighty Dollar? Is money more important to us than prayer? Is convenience more important to us than gathered worship? Is there something that we've let crowd out the place of God in our heart and in our life together as a church? It's not too hard to think about what that might be, especially for someone else, right? We're all thinking about somebody we are hoping listens to this message, right? Well, let's listen to it ourselves. It's easy to see how other Christians and other churches have gotten their priorities out of whack. The real question is, how have I? How have we? And are we ready to allow Jesus to change us? Because Jesus is not mild. If you have Jesus in your life, He's going to change it. And that change might kind of feel violent, forceful at times. You know, often we want a mild Jesus so He doesn't create a fuss. I like my life the way it is. You're welcome, Jesus. Just don't mess with anything. But the real Jesus is zealous for God's glory in this temple. And we need to be ready for Him to be passionate about changing our lives so that they are the way they were intended to be. And that might be really messy. Jesus cares. He really cares. And that might mean Bible, that might mean 
biblically that tables are tossed all over the place. Are you open to that? Jesus might toss a table you're fond of. Maybe something really convenient. It's so easy to replace true worship with convenience. True following of something that's just a little bit easier. I'm sure that these folks didn't all decide all at once to open up the temple courts for commerce. It wasn't like, hey, I've got a great idea. Let's turn this place into Walmart. Right? No. They, there's 36 acres. We'll just give them a little corner over here in the court of the Gentiles. Just let in a few people. We'll, they can put their stalls right over there. And man, everybody's going to love this. It's going to be so good. What could it hurt? And then it grew and it grew and it grew until it crowded out the true worship of God. What little corner of your life have you given over because it was easier than what you knew God wanted? Because at the same time, they knew the whole time. They knew what they were doing. Just because it's easy doesn't mean it's good. And Jesus is not mild. You and I need to be open to hearing Jesus say, get these out of here, how dare you? How dare you push worship off into a corner so that it gets lost? How dare you crowd God out of your heart so you don't bother to pray? How dare you crowd God out of your heart and fill it with politics, with the flag, with America instead? How dare you crowd God out of your heart and fill it with your family instead? How dare you crowd God out of your heart and fill it with the church instead? Or money and greed and possessions and stuff? How dare you crowd God out of your heart and fill it with you fill in the blank for you? If your Jesus never says to you, how dare you, then you probably aren't following the true Jesus. Because Jesus is the zealous Lord of this temple. The Jewish religious leaders were not so convinced. They sent a delegation to ask Jesus the same kind of thing they asked John the Baptist. Who do you think you are? Look at verse 18. Then the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Notice that they didn't say, Hey, what you did there was wrong. They don't say that, do they? No, they don't argue with his actions. They just wanted to know about his authorizations. They knew that these were not the actions of a madman. These were the actions of a Messiah. Can you give us a sign? Same word as last week, same aeon. A sign to prove that you are allowed to do this sort of thing? Can we see your papers? How should Jesus respond to that? Well, he could have done a miracle right then and there. He said, I am the Son of God and God the Son, and you should all now bow and worship me. Maybe the transfiguration at that moment. How's that for a sign? He doesn't do that. Jesus never gives in to someone else's demands. He never provides a sign when they require one. He's too smart for that. He knows what they would do with that, and it would never be the right thing. It would always give people the wrong idea and their hearts weren't, if their hearts weren't right, would always lead to the wrong conclusions to just make things worse. 
We'll see that in chapter, I think it's six, when he feeds them all with bread and where their mind all goes. If you jump down to verses 23, 24, and 25, you can see that there were many people who were watching Jesus around this time, and they came to the conclusion that he was the Messiah. But Jesus knew that they didn't have the right idea about what the Messiah was, and their hearts weren't ready to truly change and follow him. Look at verse 23. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name, or at least they thought they did. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. At this point, Jesus turns elusive again. He doesn't want to lead a revolt against Rome. He knew that they didn't get him yet. And he knew where their hearts really were. So he doesn't give himself fully to them, and he doesn't answer their demands for a sign. He doesn't fall for that one. Instead, he tells them about the ultimate sign that was still to come. Look at verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. That's dramatic, isn't it? Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. It's like a dare. It's like Go ahead, make my day. Destroy this temple, I'll raise it again in three days. Now, they're going to have a big problem with that. Sounds ludicrous to them. Way too much of a miracle. Look at verse 20. The Jews replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? They started building this temple before you were born. I don't think so. In fact, it wasn't even done for more decades after this till they considered it complete. And then it was destroyed. You're going to rebuild it in three days if we destroy it? You're the one tossing tables around here. They don't get it. And it took his disciples a long time to get it too. But eventually they understood that Jesus wasn't talking about this temple. But this temple his body. Look at verse 21. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. That's point number two of two. Jesus is not just the zealous Lord of this temple and this temple that we are, but Jesus is the true fulfillment of this temple himself in my mind jesus actually points to himself when he says verse 19 destroy this temple and i'll raise it again in three days but they don't understand the pointing they just don't have categories yet to follow what he's saying it was kind of like a time bomb parable meant to go off in their minds after the resurrection oh oh Jesus is saying that he was the true and better temple. He is what the temple was always supposed to be. Now, we've seen this idea already in the Gospel of John. Back in chapter 1, again, it says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The Greek word there is the same word, the root word, for the tabernacle in the Old Testament, the tent version of the temple. Jesus templed among us. Jesus is the temple, the meeting place with God. 
Or remember what, Nath- what he told Nathaniel at the end of chapter 1. He said, you believe that I t- because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Remember that? Jesus is the stairway to the Father. Jesus is the connecting point. The juncture between God and His people. That's what the temple was supposed to be. Jesus is the true fulfillment of the temple. The temple is supposed to be filled with God. And what does Paul say about Jesus in Colossians 2.9? In Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. Jesus is the true fulfillment of the temple. And if they tore him down, he'd rise again. And they tore him down. And he rose again. Of course, this is a much greater miracle than simply rebuilding a stone temple really fast. This is a person coming back from the dead. This is a much greater sign than the Jews were asking for. He refused to do a miracle for them. But he promised the greatest miracle ever done. Years later at his trial, his accusers will report that he threatened to destroy the temple. Though they couldn't get their stories to match up. And Jesus will later predict the destruction of the temple as a judgment that did then happen in 70 AD. But here he's not threatening to destroy it. He was promising to fulfill it. To not just make it what it was always meant to be, but to be what it was always meant to be. So that you and I can meet with God because God has come to meet with us. Jesus is the true fulfillment of all the sacrifices that were done inside that temple. One commentator I read this week said that when Jesus cleared out the temple of cattle, doves, and sheep, there was only one lamb left in the building. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he is anything but mild. Mild. 